You heard earlier about the Interfaith Youth Corps in Frederick and how this young woman, Audrey, was calling up to Chicago to find out about this groundbreaking Interfaith Youth Corps there, bringing together people of all faiths and no faiths to do social justice work together and build relationships across what many think are inevitable divides. And the founder of that group, his name is Ibu Patel. His first of two books is called Acts of Faith. The story of, a, of an American Muslim in the struggle for the soul of a generation. Both Ibu's books are published with Beacon Press, the Unitarian Universalist uh, publishing house. And I'm going to tell you more about him in the sermon, but for the spoken meditation, I wanted to share with you two of the three quotes, the epigrams at the front of his book. So often those quotes kind of give you the flavor of uh, what a text is about. And I want you to invite you to pay attention to whether one or both or some aspect of either of these quotes, whether that resonates or intersects with what's going on in your life or what are the place you may be called to, to reach across a divide or a separation in yourself or with colleagues or with family or with loved ones. The first is from Walt Whitman, from his song of myself. Now, Walt Whitman was not a UU, though he would have been a good, back then it would have been a Unitarian, not a UU, but he would have been a good candidate for, certainly for one, though he was very much uh, revered in the Transcendentalist movement, which is a strong part of Unitarian history. But he said in Song of Myself, do I contradict myself? Well, yes, I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. So I think that's true within ourselves as well as our world, that pluralism is a deeply true part of reality. So where are you seeing that in your life, inside yourself, or in the world around you? That I am large, I contain multitudes. The second is from the Persian poet Rumi in the 13th century. Many of you may know him. His full name is Jalaluddin Muhammad Rumi. Because, of course, Rumi was a Muslim, but he was a Sufi Muslim, part of the mystical tradition. And I'll talk some more about this in the sermon, but I think so much about a religious tradition, you know, do, when we think of Roman Catholicism, do we think first of the Inquisition or do we think of Thomas Merton, of Dorothy Day, of St. Francis of Assisi? When we think of Islam, do we think first of the 9-11 bombers or do we think of the sultan who was in dialogue and building bridges with St. Francis of Assisi? Or do we think of Rumi? What parts of the tradition are we valorizing and what parts are we deprecating and, and why is that? So this um, Rumi poem says, Start a huge, foolish project like Noah. Start a huge, foolish project like Noah. So where are you finding either one of those things in your life? Where some seeming contradictions that you're trying to hold together and where you're finding maybe the need to say, I am large, I contain multitudes. Or where are you feeling maybe the seed within yourself to start a huge, foolish project, like Noah, like the Interfaith Youth Corps. M. Scott Peck, in his best-selling book, The Road Less Traveled, writes that one, 
somewhat oversimplified definition of sanity is the ability to be in touch with and to cope with reality. Inversely, one definition of insanity is being out of touch with or unable to cope with reality. Now, he also adds the important caveat that it is possible for individuals to be so much more in touch with reality than their fellow citizens that they will be deemed insane by a sick society. Now, for this morning, the aspect of reality that I would like to invite us to be in touch with and to learn to cope with in a healthy way is pluralism those multitudes that Whitman spoke of. Some of you may recall that a little more than a year ago, my first sermon from this pulpit was titled Pluralism, Pragmatism, Progressivism, My Journey to Unitarian Universalism. That's a lot of isms. And the first word of that title, pluralism, is the most vital factor that started my journey toward becoming a UU. For those of you who also come from more exclusivist backgrounds, I suspect that encounters with diversity and with pluralism, with Whitman's multitudes, are also part of the story of how you came to be sitting in this sanctuary. For me, growing up as a Southern Baptist in the Midlands of South Carolina, there was a time when it would have seemed to me like a good idea if all, at that point, six billion people on earth were Southern Baptists. But as I grew older, there was this pesky thing that happened. I began to continue to meet increasing numbers of non-Southern Baptists who were kind, well-adjusted, smart, funny, confident, competent, healthy, dare I say it, sane, human (laughs) beings in touch with reality. My childhood church taught me that Jesus, as, de- as defined by the Southern Baptist Convention, was the one true center of life, the universe, and everything. But when your roommate is Roman Catholic, your best friend is an atheist, and your favorite professor is a Buddhist, it's increasingly difficult to maintain with integrity the position that the Southern Baptist flavor of religion, or any other single perspective, is the one true center. Now, the contrasting view of pluralism is that the universe, upon even the most cursory examination around this room or out the window, is a blooming, buzzing, dazzling feast of diversity, a multitude. And as we seek to navigate and understand and appreciate this pluralism in a way that is healthy and sane for all concerned, I would like to to invite you to consider as your tour guide, you don't have to take them on permanently, but for the next 15 minutes or so, consider your tour guide to be Ibu Patel. Ibu was the founder and president of the Interfaith Youth Corps, a Chicago-based nonprofit dedicated to building the interfaith youth movement. He's a Rhodes Scholar, a Muslim, an Indian American, and the 2013 Ware Lecturer at the Unitarian Universalist General Assembly, which was last month. Each year, the Ware Lecture is a highlight of the UU General Assembly. Uh, The inaugural Ware Lecture was way back in 1922, and it's happened almost every year since. Past Ware Lectures have included Reinhold Niebuhr, Howard Thurman, Martin Luther King Jr., Saul Alinsky, 
Kurt Vonnegut, Elaine Pagels, Mary Oliver, and Karen Armstrong, among many other luminaries. And if you're interested, you can read most of their transcripts online. You can even see some of them on video. It'll take you a while to get through all of those, but probably will be worth your time. Ibu Patel was asked to join this illustrious group to help further encourage and to bring attention to his ongoing contributions to the interfaith movement, especially with young people trying to make a difference with the coming generation. The Interfaith Youth Corps, IYC, describes its goals as what could be called a healthy pluralism one that is in touch with and seeks to be in right relationship with the reality of the world's diversity instead of denying it and trying to make everyone be like you. IYC defines healthy pluralism in three ways. Respect for people's diverse religious and non-religious identities, mutually inspiring relationships between people of different backgrounds, and common action for the common good. As was said by the previous Ware lecturer, Dr. King, who preceded Ibu Patel's lecture by almost 50 years, we have inherited a large house, a great world house in which we have to live together. A family unduly separated in ideas, cultures, and interests, who because we can never again live apart we must somehow learn to live with each other in peace. The large house in which we live, de- live demands that we transform this worldwide neighborhood into a worldwide family. Together we must learn to live together as sister and brother, or together we will perish as fools. And Ibu's particular path toward that goal of healthy pluralism is bringing together young people of all faiths and no faith to bring relationships and to build relationships through social justice work. As we use like to say, you don't have to think alike to love alike. Though that's often attributed to the Unitarian martyr Francis David, and he didn't say it. Does anybody know who did? John Wesley, the founder of Methodism. But choosing to love alike in the spirit of interfaith cooperation, even when we don't always think alike regarding our individual or group beliefs, is not the only response that some people have to pluralism. Ibu likes to say that religion can manifest itself in many different ways. The same religion in different hands can be a bubble, it can be a barrier, It can be a bomb, or it can be a bridge. The difference, Ibu says, is the Martin Luther King path versus the Al-Qaeda path. And the most striking example I've seen of this phenomenon recently is the headline in last month's New York Times that said, Extremism rises among Myanmar Buddhists. Have any of you been following that story? A few... I'll say that again. Extremism rises among Buddhists. Most of us usually think of Buddhists as serene, peaceful, compassion, mindful meditators. I didn't make it to our Buddhist fellowship this morning, but I'm assuming that no fisticuffs were exchanged in, uh, in the discussion and meditation. Please let me know if it did. We'll have to have a mediation session. 
But Buddhism has violent fundamentalist sects as well. The following is a brief excerpt of that New York Times article. After a ritual prayer atoning for past sins, Ashen Warothru, a Buddhist monk with a rock star following in Myanmar, sat before an overflowing crowd of thousands of devotees and launched into a rant against what he called the enemy. Now, he missed something there about, you know, we call it the interdependent web of all existence, Buddhists call it like you know, interdependent arising and um, missed something there. But the enemy, the country's Muslim minority, he said, you can be full of kindness and love, but you cannot sleep next to a mad dog. Ashwin Rothru said, referring to Muslims, over the past year, images of rampaging Burmese Buddhists carrying swords and the vituperative sermons of monks like Ashwin Rothru have underlined the rise of extreme Buddhism in Myanmar. Buddhist lynch mobs have killed more than 200 Muslims and forced more than 150,000 people, mostly Muslims, from their homes. Warothru, the spiritual leader of the radical movement, uh, skates a thin line between free speech and incitement. In his recent sermon, he described the reported massacre of schoolchildren and other Muslim inhabitants in the capital city of Makitala in March that was documented by human rights groups. He called that a show of strength. He said, if we are weak, we will hand our land to the Muslims. Now, I wish I thought that was different than many of the, call, the anxieties I've heard among state legislators about Sharia law, but I think those are unfortunately closer than it makes me comfortable. Buddhism would seem to have a secure place in Myanmar. Nine out of ten people are already Buddhist. Uh, as are nearly all the top leaders in the business world, the government, the military, the police. But Warothru, who describes himself as a nationalist, says Buddhism is under siege by Muslims, who are having more children than Buddhists, buying up Buddhist-owned land. He's tapping into historical grievances that date from the British colonial days when Indians, many of them Muslims, were brought into the country as civil servants and soldiers. Now, if you know anything about um, Siddhartha Gautama, the historical Buddha's original intention of helping all beings eliminate suffering through insights into the nature of themselves and of reality and being in right relationship with all beings and reality, then you know how much this violent fundamentalist sect of Buddhism is perverting the heart of Buddhism. It's seeking to avoid interfaith cooperation by scapegoating the other, seeking to eliminate those viewed as different. It is the religion not of the bridge, but of the bomb. And notice, of course, that today in Myanmar, it is the Muslims who are the victims of a violent fundamentalist strain of another religion. Now, if you're familiar with the history of Christianity, you can trace a similar dynamic of how Jesus' teachings have been perverted. Uh, looking at the historical trends, the author Brian McLaren has argued that the problem isn't any form of religion per se. The problem is unhealthy, small-minded, tribalistic forms of any religion. He writes, there are at least two kinds of every religion and non-religion, one of social control and one of social transformation. 
One to hold people down and one to lift them up. One, to, one an opiate to pacify people into compliance. The other a stimulant to empower people in building a better world, a better future, a better life. Giving them courage to live in peaceful defiance of violent, corrupt, and greedy powers that be. And when I look at history, I see individuals and groups who feel inspired by traditions like Christianity to care for the poor and others who feel inspired by Christianity and other religions to bomb abortion clinics. The difference, as far as I can see, is the interpretive lens that the various individuals and groups bring to the tradition, which to me puts the responsibility more on the individuals and groups with the poisonous, self-interested interpretations than with the tradition or the text themselves. Not that those traditions and texts are perfect. Now, some pundits try to claim, and you may have heard this, that Islam is an exception to this rule, that is, it, that it is inherently a religion of violence. But I remain unconvinced, as does every responsible religion scholar that I've read on the subject. A lot would obviously need to be said to address the entire 14-year history of Islam and all its complexity. But for now, let me start with just the first line of the first surah, which is uh, the word for chapter, of the Quran, which says, in the name of God. Now, sometimes you may have heard in the name of Allah. Allah is just the Arabic word for God. Christians that live in Arabic-speaking worlds, they pray to Allah. You know, Jews who live in Arabic, if you meet an Arabic Jew, they're going to say Allah for God. It's just the Arabic word for God. So in the name of God, the gracious, the compassionate. That's not a bad beginning. Grace, compassion. Now, of course, there are some questionable, difficult, ugly parts of the Quran, just as there are in the Bible, in the Hindu scriptures, and in the history of science, for that matter as well as, frankly, in the history of any arena in which imperfect human beings are involved. So to me, the lesson to take away is that any tradition, religious or secular, can be a source of bubbles, of barriers, of bombs, or of bridges. But the choice is ours. The difference is the intention and the motivation that we bring to our sacred texts, to our traditions, to our practices. What parts we choose to lift up and which parts we choose to denounce as obsolete. Of course, all that's easier said than done, especially when competing or in conversation with entrenched prejudices and power players in various religious traditions. Indeed, one of the most memorable lines of Ibu Patel's Ware lecture last month was that if you choose the path of interfaith leadership, you're going to get punched. Now that may be metaphorical, that may be physical. As one of his editors once told him, Ibu, you're leading with your chin in one of the most divisive issues of our time. To know that the path is dangerous of choosing pluralism, choosing multitudes over prejudice and bridges over barriers, you only have to think back to all that nonsense, hyperbolic rhetoric and vitriol surrounding such issues as the Quran burnings in Florida or the Muhammad cartoons in Denmark or the so-called Ground Zero Mosque which is essentially just the Islamic equivalent of a Jewish community center or what the YMCA used to be back when we remembered that it stood for the Young Men's Christian Association. 
And one of the stated goals of that Islamic community center, now called Park 51, to attract less attention, is it was originally going to be called the Cordoba Center, which is actually a beautiful story about interfaith cooperation in history. That Park 51, the point of it, is precisely as a center for interfaith cooperation near Ground Zero and to promote moderate Islam, which we need more of, not less of, more places and spaces for that kind of talk and activity. And as Michael Bloomberg, the Jewish mayor of New York, said, we need to remember that Islam did not attack the World Trade Center. Al-Qaeda did. Let us not forget that Muslims were among those murdered on 9-11 and that our Muslim neighbors, they grieved with us as New Yorkers and they grieved with us as Americans. We would betray our values and who we are as New Yorkers and Americans if we said no to a mosque in lower Manhattan. That speech understandably made headlines, but Ibu Patel shares the lesser-known backstory to Mayor Bloomberg's motivation to speak out so courageously and at political risk for pluralism and against the prejudice of Islamophobia. It turns out that Michael Bloomberg, one of the richest people in this country, a man who had won an unprecedented third term in one of the most visible and influential places in American politics, had a childhood memory of prejudice that still stung. He remembered a time when his family, because they were Jewish, could not purchase a home outright in the Boston suburb of Medford. They had to ask their lawyer, a Christian, to buy it and sell it back to them. Some people experience bigotry and say, I'm going to build a world where this never happens to my people again. Bloomberg experienced it and decided, I'm going to build a world where this never happens to anyone again. But unlike Mayor Bloomberg, too few people have come to see that Islamophobia is equally as repugnant as anti-Semitism or any other undue religious prejudice. And this point is not minor. There are approximately 1.5 billion Muslims in the world. 1.5 billion. As a point of comparison, there are 2.1 Christians and only 800,000 Unitarian Universalists. To again quote Dr. King, we must learn to live together as brother and sister, or together we will perish as fools. Significantly, Ibu Patel ended his Ware lecture by quoting the vision of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who, though he faced tremendous prejudice, violence, and threats, said that he did not seek revenge in the wake of all he'd faced in the wake of the Montgomery bus boycotts. Instead, Dr. King taught that our means, how we plan to reach our goal, must be commensurate with our ends, the goal we seek. A.J. Musta famously said that there is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Our means and our ends must be the same or we'll undercut ourselves from ever getting there. Dr. King said, with that being known, the end is reconciliation. The end is redemption. And the end is the creation of the beloved community. 
Uh, Take that to mean, then, that all along the way, we must seek reconciliation with one another, even those deeply different than we are. And if the end is the creation of the beloved community, then we must seek to build bridges across the divides of race, class, gender, and other divisions, not just at the end, but at every point along the way. On Sunday, September 15th, you're going to come and find the sanctuary transformed. Instead of the seats as you see them now, there are going to be at least 15 round tables, and the chairs are going to be around those. And after the 11 a.m. service, that'll be like normal. Each of you will be invited to stay if you have time to be part of a conversation here in this sanctuary about shaping a future vision for this congregation. That conversation, which will last no longer than an hour and will provide a little food so to help tide you over, uh, that's part of our ongoing work of discerning what is our end, what is our vision, if only for the next three or five years. What's our goal? What are we uniquely able and gifted uh, and equipped to accomplish together as a congregation in this time and place, in Frederick and in the surrounding community? Who might we partner with? We're seeking to find consensus as a congregation around three to five points that can serve in Ibu Patel's words to focus us on common action for the common good. Common action for the common good. Between now and then, I invite you to reflect on Dr. King's words that the end is reconciliation. The end is redemption. The end is the beloved community. If that is the case, and if you have a different vision than Dr. King, I really do, authentically, we want to hear that too, because that's part of the multitudes. That's part of the pluralism. So I want, we want to talk about how either that vision or your vision or the visions together, how that can help us focus again on common action for the common good, what we might accomplish together that's more than any of us can accomplish alone. For now, as a way of affirming our commitment as Unitarian Universalists to building bridges, to pluralism over prejudice, and to the understanding that you don't have to think alike to love alike.